I think uh, one thing that is similar of all the testimonies is that those people, they asked God and they acknowledged that they needed something from God, right? So if you want to not waste your time today, you should ask God to speak to you and be ready to receive from God and expect to receive from God. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we pray that that uh, we will be ready uh, with open hearts, Lord, to receive what you have to say to us, Father God. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to, to operate in us, Father God, to work on our hearts and change us, Lord. Lord, we cannot do the things that you require of us, Father, except by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we invite you to work in our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Today I want to preach from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Peter is, is writing to a letter to the churches in Asia, the province of Asia, so it's modern-day Turkey. And these people are going through difficulties. They're being persecuted and in his short letter, he asked them three times to be sober, self-controlled, and alert. The first time, he asked them in the King James Version to gird the loins of their mind. So because in the old times, you know, if you wear like long flowing clothes, you need to like kind of get them ready if you want to run, right? So he said, gird the loins of your mind. Be prepared for action, is what it says in the NIV. And in, later on, he tells them to be self-controlled and alert because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter's asking them to think clearly, being aware that the end of all things is near. And especially, they should love one another in, in considering that, that uh, above all else, they should love one another. I want to go through these, these uh, two short verses to, I believe that the Holy Spirit has something that he wants to speak to us as well. Peter says, the end of all things is near. You know, um, I think people, we have a fascination with the end of the world, Right? You see, like, uh, people like, ask, sometimes ask me, what do you think about the, the Mayan prophecy, you know, and, and, and you know, all of these, these prophecies about the end of the world, or um, I think uh, last year there was the, the Christian guy who said that the world would end on April or something, right? And everybody, I mean, it's in the newspaper, you know, people are like, wow, you know, the end of the world is coming. People are are fascinated by the end of the world. On the other hand, sometimes if you tell people, no, really, it's not just movies. The end of the world really is coming. Then they're like, ooh, you know, you, you're, you're crazy, 
But actually, it's it's not that crazy, considering. I mean, if you believe that the world was created, or the world had a beginning, and you don't even have to believe in God to believe in that, because scientists they say, you know, in the 20th century they said, oh, you know what? We used to believe that the world just always existed, but now. According to you know these, uh, I think it's, um, now we believe that there was a a big bang and suddenly just everything existed out of out of al- almost nothing, and so I don't know that sounds you know kind of crazy to me. But you don't have to believe in God to believe in that. Does it? Is it so crazy that the world one day will come to an end? I don't think so. Even okay, if you don't believe in God, say you know billions of years later, the Earth, you know, I mean the the sun becomes a red giant or something, and then there's no more Earth. It's, they're, 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 I think it's it's okay to think about the the end of the world. The Bible says that the end of the world is is something that's going to happen. Peter, in his next letter, in Second Peter chapter three, verse eight to ten, he says. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Means it comes. It will come when you don't expect it. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. It means all the elements, all the elements on the periodic table, going to be melted away, destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. That nice car that you saved up for. You know the. Um, I like classic cars. You know, if I get one one day and put it in my garage, it will be gone. You know, everything that that you've that you've worked for and and all of that, it will it will be gone. The only thing that will remain is the spirits of people. Is your spirit will remain. Nothing else. Peter in first. Looking back at First Peter chapter four, he says the end of all things is near, and he's talking about the the coming of Jesus when the 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 day of judgment, you know, will will, will come. The end of all things is near, and he says that it's near because it could become at any time, because now that that Jesus he died and rose again and ascended up to heaven, and he said that he will return, and he could come at any time. And that was true two thousand years ago. And even though people may not believe in it today, but it's true today as well. And I believe it, and I want to act accordingly. Jesus could come at any time. The end is near. This is something very important that we should know. Christians should not feel shaken by this or concerned. They should not be, "Whoa, Jesus is coming back." Rather, we need to be ready for His return. We need to be Maranatha, come, 
Lord Jesus, come. That's the, the, the last thing it says in the Bible. If you look at the end of the book of Revelation, it says, come, Lord Jesus, come. We need to be like that. We need to be ready for the return of Jesus. If you, if you are listening to me and you may think I'm crazy because I take the Bible at its word, but if it makes you uncomfortable, I want to con- you to consider carefully. Maybe you should put your trust in Jesus. And instead of being uncomfortable about thinking about his return, then you can look forward to it. What's so good about this world anyways that you want to hang on to it? Do you know that God did not create, did not intend for us to live in the, this world as we experience it now? He did not intend for us to experience the curse that came because of sin. We all have free will. I don't know why God allowed us to have free will. Maybe it's because he wanted to have a relationship with us. But he allowed us to have free will nonetheless. You have a choice. Each one of you have a choice whether you're going to choose evil or choose to obey God. Whether you're going to submit to God or rebel against God. But because of this free will, there's sin and the effects of sin in this world. God did not intend it to be this way. He didn't intend for us to live in a world where there's war and strife and hatred towards one another and poverty and lack. God did not intend for that. Is it really so good that you want to live in this world forever? If you feel that sometimes this world doesn't live up to your expectations, isn't it reasonable to think that maybe you were created for another world? In fact, you were. You were created to live together with God for all eternity. And this is good news. You all can, can experience this. You all can have an assurance that whether Jesus comes before you die or if you die and you go up to meet him, you are going to live with him for all eternity in a place where there's no more sickness or crying or mourning or pain. That's what Jesus said, God says in Revelation chapter 21. He says, the old order of things has passed away. Behold, I have made all things new. This is what we have to look forward to. This is what Peter says. He says, the end of all things is near. It's not a bad thing. God is, but God is patient. He hasn't done it yet because he's patient. Because he wants as many as possible to come to repentance. Some people think, have a wrong idea of God. They think that God is, is, is an angry man angry man and he's ready he wants to punish people who rebel against him no it's not true god loved the world so much all of us everyone in this room that he sent his son jesus to die for us so that we can be reconciled to him he loved us he loves us he wants to have a relationship with you this this is this is what, what Christians believe, why we are looking forward to, to his return. He's patient. If, 
If uh, this sounds new to you, I want to tell you that to become a Christian is very easy. You don't have to go to university, graduate after four years. You don't have to pay a certain amount of money. You don't have to even do a number of, of good things in order to become a Christian. In order to become a Christian, you need to submit to God. And you say, God, I acknowledge you are God. You are the Lord in my life. I, I choose not to obey myself any longer, but to obey you and what you want me to do. And I accept your forgiveness, what you did for me. And that's, that's the beginning. And then you're a Christian. A Christian is, is, is an orientation where you're, where you're headed. It's not a place that you, that you arrive at. You understand? So you can become a Christian today, right now. You don't have to be uncertain about, wow, where will I, where will I go? What will my experience be after, after I die? Or if, if Jesus comes back before then? Then when you, people ask you about the Mayan prophecy or whatever, you can laugh. <laughs> you say, I don't care. <laughs> I want Jesus to come back. That's great. Peter, he says, therefore, because the end of all things is near, therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Peter is saying, hey, you need to be clear-minded because the end of all things is near. You need to be clear-minded and mentally self-disciplined so that you can talk to God, so that you can hear from God. You can hear what God is speaking to you. A lot of times we are so, not confused, but distracted. Our heads are full of so many things. Today we live in the information age, right? It's not a question of whether we can get information. It's a question of whether we can make sense of it. You know, there's too much information, too many things going on. Everything is fast. You know, uh, now I was amazed... Just thinking about it, we, we went to visit my grandparents and our family in, in Missouri. And we got there, and by the end of the day, we were, we were on the farm, you know, just, just sitting and, and, and enjoying the, the, the scenery and everything. I was like, wow, this morning, we were 3,000 miles away in, in, in Seattle, you know, almost uh, 200 uh, 2,500 miles away in Seattle. And now we're here in Missouri. Things happen so fast. You know, we can, we can go, go from here to there. Sometimes we, because of this rapidity, the speed at which everything happens, we get distracted easily. And we, our minds are not concentrated thinking about, about uh, what they should be thinking. We're not listening to God. What does God want, from, want for us to do, to, to hear? But Peter says we need to be clear-minded and self-controlled so that we can hear from God. A lot of times we might not be living a big sinful life. We're not going around robbing banks or, or sleeping with many different people. But we're living a very normal life and not committing any big sins. But because our life is so good and, and we're, we're so busy that we don't have time to think about God. And this is also dangerous. 
This is also dangerous. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 14, verse 16 through 20. Luke 14, 16 to 20. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I am on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, and I cannot come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. This is the danger of, of the good life. This is the danger of things going well. This is the danger of when everything goes right for us. We need to be careful. You know, we don't want to be distracted like, like these people were distracted. They were invited to the banquet, because, but because they were so busy, they didn't have time. They, they had excuses why they couldn't go. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29 and through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul, he says, What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as though they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. And Paul is not saying that we should ignore our spouses or our relationships or our obligations, but he's warning us about keeping a focus, keeping a focus on what God wants for us, what God wants, what God is speaking to us. He doesn't want us to be distracted. Young people, many of you are graduating or going to be graduating soon and you're praying to God to give you a good career and send you a good spouse, and these are good things, and you should keep praying for those things. But when God gives them to you, don't allow these blessings to become a snare to you or to become a distraction to you. You need to be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can hear from God, hear what God wants for you to do. You know, I love spending time with my family. I have two daughters, and, you know, I love my wife. I love to spend time with them. And I could spend every night just spending time with my family, just my family. But the danger is that soon I will be, we will be in a cocoon, insulated from the rest of the world. 
And the rest of the world goes by with its needs and, and everything goes by. And I don't pay attention because I'm insulated in my cocoon. You know, I think we, we need to spend time with our family. But we also need to involve our family in the, in the ministry as well. You know, we, we shouldn't... This is, this is the danger. You know, as, as you get a job, you have more money. As you have a relationship and you get married, and you have kids, the danger is, is just to insulate yourself. You know, thick insulation, right? You don't hear anything, you don't feel anything, it's just insulation. And then it's just you, and then you're distracted. You can't hear from God, what God wants you to do. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Paul, he says that, that because, because the end is near, we need to love one another. And this is the most important thing, he says. He says, above everything else, whatever you do, make sure that you love one another intensely, fervently. Love one another. Why is love so important? The Bible says that in the church, love is the connective tissue, the ligaments, the cartilage that hold the different parts of the body together and allow them to work together. Love is like oil in an engine. How, how, how long would your engine operate if you took out all the oil? Not too long. Love, love is very important. It's, it's absolutely essential each of us in the, in, the, in the church, we have different gifts, different abilities, different passions that God has put in us. Some people may be passionate about one thing. Some people may be good at another thing. What we need to be careful of is looking down on people who don't have the, the, the same, same thing as, as, as us, the same gift or ability or passion as we do. Instead, we need to appreciate the, the variety of how God has made people. When we, when we look at other people, it's very easy for us to judge them on the things that we are strong at. For example, sometimes, I, some, maybe say for example, I'm, I'm a person who is very good at controlling my speech. So I always say the right thing in the right amount, at the right time. And then I look at somebody else and like, wow, those guys, they can't control their mouth. You know, there's no filter. It just goes right out, you know. But I should not judge those people because my, I should not judge them according to my strong points, right? Instead, I have to look at their good points, their strengths. In the same way, some people may be very excellent at prayer, inter- intercessory prayer. And they, they say, well, wow, these people, they don't, they don't have the, the, same, the same focus or they don't re- recognize the need of this in the same way that I do. Well, have you ever thought that maybe God put that on your heart, especially because he wants you to do it? We are all different parts of the same body. Amen? Say, for example, 
you love to serve people, like working and, and, and doing stuff. That's great because so God gives some people that type of gift, the gift of serving. You shouldn't look down on the people who is not really their gift. Maybe they, they, they can help out for 15 minutes and then, you know, they kind of like walk out the back. Don't look down on them. God has given you something different than, than that other person. We should not judge other people according to, to our, our strengths and their weaknesses. That's, that's my point. Love covers a multitude of, of sins. We need to be looking to build each other up and using what God has given us to build the other person up. The gifts God has given you, he's given you for the purpose of serving other people. If God has given you some passion, use it to serve the other person. If God has given you some gift, use it to serve the other person and build them up. Paul says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love looks after the interests of other people and seeks to share their burden. So now you can see how love is like the oil in an engine, right? Have you ever worked at, with someone who they're always like looking for faults and they're looking to promote themselves and put you down? How many people have ever worked with somebody like that? Okay, you, <laughs> you know what I mean, right? It's, it's kind of makes it, makes the workday troubling, right? It makes it not so much a joy to go to work. Can you imagine if you went to a workplace and everybody was like that? Always looking to, like, for other people to make mistakes. Always looking to raise themselves up over you, wouldn't that be miserable? In fact, that's what the devil is like. I I think that's what hell is like. When C.S. Lewis, he wrote the screw tape letters, there are letters between a junior demon and a senior demon, and he's giving advice, right? And C.S. Lewis explained that when he imagined how they interact, he tried to imagine some nasty bureaucracy or some uh, workplace where, where people are like this. They're always looking to pounce on the weaknesses of others. Brothers and sisters, that's demonic. We shouldn't, we shouldn't allow ourselves to think like this in the church. Instead, we need to look to help our weak, our weak brothers and sisters and to, and to carry their burdens together with them. Paul says, in this way, we fulfill the law of Christ. We cannot love people this way naturally. It doesn't come naturally. We can't love all people this way. And we can't love any particular person this way perfectly. This type of love must come from God. In order to have this type of love, you need to make a willful decision. This willful decision, when you make that that decision, it's like the seed planted into your heart. 
It's not an emotion. It's a decision to love that person. I want to tell you a secret. If you're married to someone, this also applies in your marriage too. Because sometimes if you've married somebody because you fell in love with them, sometimes you might fall out of love with them, right? You need to make a willful decision to love your husband or wife. And when you make that willful decision, it's like a seed that's planted in your heart. And what you can do is plant the seed, but God can cause it to grow, and God can cause it to bear fruit. You see? You need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit by planting the seed, by making that willful decision. And then you rely on the Holy Spirit to do the rest. You need to love, not just when you feel like it, but because you decide to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the part where I get to read from Corey Tinboom. How many people know about Corey Tinboom? Well, you know if, if I've, you've listened to me before because I talk about her. Corey Tinboom was a, a Dutch Christian, and she was not a, a, a remarkable person. She was an older lady who was a watchmaker, and she still lived with her father and her sister, and neither she or her sister got married. And she was a watchmaker, and she had a ministry also to minister to um, uh, developmentally dis- um, slow, slow children. She taught them about God. And when World War II came, the Jews were fleeing the, the Nazis, and they, Corey Tinboom and her family, they hid the Jews in, the, in, their, in their home. But they were betrayed, and eventually all of their all of their family were sent to the concentration camp. So this is a story that Corey Tinboom shares about after she was miraculously um, she was miraculously freed because of a clerical error. She was able to get out of the concentration camp, and then after the war, what happened? Actually, her sister died in the in the concentration camp. So I'm going to read from from her book. A Tramp for the Lord. It's just a, a, a lot of short stories. Um, uh, it'll only take a few minutes. It's three pages. So just be patient, please. Chapter 7, Love Your Enemy. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to the defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed to hear most in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture— Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I liked to think that that's where the forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And even though I cannot find a scripture for it, I believe that God places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. The solemn faces stared back at me not quite daring to believe. There were never any questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, 
in silence collected the wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back to me with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. The place was Ravensbrook, and the man who was making his way forward had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly on forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. They, those that were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed the bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me! I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. 
I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. So you see, this is a, this is an experience of, I think, the, the type of love that we're talking about. This is not a love that is natural. This is not a love that comes from people. This is a love that comes only from God. The Bible uses a unique Greek word for this love that's only found in the Bible in Christian writings. This word is agape, and it's translated into English as love, but it has a special meaning. It's the love that comes from God. This love is what we need, but we can't have it by ourselves. We need, we need the help of the Holy Spirit, but it starts with an act of the will. This is a costly love that we can have because God first loved us. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 12, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Brothers and sisters, let us love one another deeply. This is something that we need to practice with each other. If we don't love one another, how can we love people outside? Let's start to love one another deeply. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love allows us to function together well as God intends for us. Romans 13 says, verse 8 through 11, it says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And then he goes on, he says, and do this, understanding the present time. Above all else, 
We should love one another. We owe it to one another. We shouldn't owe any, anyone anything except a debt to love them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, Paul says, If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. What is the devil's scheme? Is to destroy the church by causing there to be bitterness, offenses against one another. And we hold that bitterness against one another. That's the devil's scheme. But Paul says, hey, if you forgive them, I forgive them too. And we should forgive one another so that the devil, we can we were protected against the devil's schemes. If we love one another, it doesn't matter what the, what the devil tries to do. He's not going to be able to destroy God's church. Brothers and sisters, is a simple message today, but I think it's difficult. But, you know, the Bible says that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. As we... Give, yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. We allow him to work in us. We make that decision to plant the seed in our heart. God is the one who's going to grow up that plant and cause it to bear fruit. I, I, I love you. And I, I want to let you know I love you. And you should also, when you look, look out over the other people here, Tell yourself, I love these people, and I'm going to love these people. I'm going to just serve them. I'm going to labor for them. I'm going to watch out for them. When they do something wrong, I'm going to help to restore them. I'm going to cover, cover over their, their sins, their offenses against me. Let's love this way. Amen. Okay, let, let's, let's pray, and then we will, we will have an agape feast. Okay, we will have a, have a love feast. <laughs> For lunch, we encourage, I encourage you all to stay. If you're new here, we have lunch every other Sunday. So this is a Sunday that you pick to come. It's a good, good one because we're going to have lunch. Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we, we know that your word is true, Father God. Lord, we don't always live up to it, Father, but we know that we can by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you, Father God, for giving us your Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, so that we can know you and that we can obey you. Father, I pray, Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Father God, Lord, call them to you, Father, so that they will make a decision, Father God, to follow you, Lord. They will be your sons and daughters, Lord. Thank you, Father God. Lord, we pray that you bless this meal, Father, and bless these people, Father God, as they go back to work. Help them to not be distracted by the things of this world, but to be clear-minded, Father God, even in the busyness of life, that they can think what you want them to do, Father God. Lord, that they will be ready to meet you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.